I think words are fascinating. I especially find it interesting the way that words change meanings. You know, nice, for example. Nice means polite, but not overly so. But it used to be an insult to call something nice. And now to say, oh, that's so nice of you, is a, is a mild compliment. When do words change meanings? How do they receive meanings? I enjoyed the 2019 movie, The Professor and the Madman. You guys see this one that came out a few years ago. It was about the formation of the Oxford English Dictionary. So the creation of this dictionary in which they were going to try and take every word in the English language and talk about its roots when it was originally used. How do you find the first time that a word is used? You just have to read everything and make note of every time someone uses the word, say, joy, and look for the way that it changes meanings and be able to demonstrate it, and that's what they're doing with this dictionary. So it's a fascinating undertaking, but by the end of the movie, after they've published the first few volumes, they have this discovery that it's already out of date because all sorts of new words are constantly being invented. These uh, Oxford dons kind of listen into a wall to the, lady, or to, to the uh, cleaning maids who are in the next room cleaning up things, and they're talking to each other in these thick Cockney accents that uh, these professors can't understand what they're saying and the new words that are being invented at that moment. I'm just marveling at the way language changes. 2014 was a particularly interesting year for new words being entered into the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. 2014 saw such words as adorbs enter the dictionary, adorbs. A lot of these, you know, if, if you can get the context of something, it's awfully helpful. But yeah, you can now go up to uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, not just look up the word adorable, but also the slang term adorbs, if you'd like to know when that is appropriate to use. Never is actually the answer, but there you have it. <laughs> adorbs. Other words that came in in 2014, YOLO, listicle, a listicle, you know that one? It's like an article that you read that it's really just a list of things published as an article, so you only have to read the list headlines. Maybe you read a website with a listicle, an article that's really just a list of things. How about cray? Do you know the word cray? Well, the word of the day for us today that first appeared in the OED in 2014 is the word humble brag. A humble brag first used in 2002, entered the dictionary in 2014. A humble brag is when you say a phrase that on the surface looks self-derogatory or self-demeaning, but is really bragging about yourself. A few examples. Oh, I just can't believe how bad my voice sounded when I was on TV last night. A humble brag. Oh, you guys, I'm sorry I'm moving so slow today. I ran a marathon yesterday, and my knee's hurting so much. I don't know if I mentioned I ran a marathon. Did you hear that part? <laughs> humble brags. Do you know people who humble brag? I've got more illustrations. Let's keep going. Oh, goodness, these pants, they just don't fit anymore. I'm having the hardest time finding clothes that fit ever since I lost weight. You know, I am so tired of people seeing all the cool family crafts we're doing and telling me I need to start a blog about it. Humble brag. These are made up, by the way. I don't do crafts with the family. <laughs> Someone might say, gosh, we are having the hardest time with our son, Tim. 
we just don't know what to do with him. He's been offered scholarships to four different colleges, and we just, we don't know what he should do. Just pray for us, you know, we're not humble brag. Gosh, I just don't have room for all the trophies in the trophy case. What am I going to do? Oh, woe is me. Our scripture passage today has to do with the removal of the humble brag from the Christian life. We're looking at Matthew chapter 6. Now, Matthew chapter 6 has three passages in a row that you're going to be very familiar with. First, Jesus says, when you give, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. Then he says, when you pray, don't pray on the street corner. And then he also gives the Lord's Prayer there as an example. And finally, he says, and now when you fast, you're not supposed to go and make your face up to look bad and to let other people know how righteous you are by fasting. You're familiar with all three of these passages, but ordinarily when we talk about them, we talk about them all separately and then use it as an opportunity to talk about giving in general, prayer in general, or fasting in general. But the way this is set up in Matthew chapter 6 here, we have verse 1 as the thesis, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And then all three of these are given as examples, giving, prayer, and fasting. So today, in brief, we're going to consider all of them. We're not going to talk about all of the ins and outs of giving, all of the ins and outs of prayer or of fasting, but only about how one could practice these things to be seen and how one ought to practice their righteousness simply for the glory of God and not to be seen. So let's pray together and we'll start reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Father God, I pray that you would teach us today and that when we hear your word, we would rejoice and obey it. If there are any areas in our lives where we need conviction on this topic, please point them out to us so that we can be quick to turn away from our wrong behavior and follow you better. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's stop here. Don't practice your righteousness to be seen. There are some acts of righteousness that are inherently public. We pray together as a congregation. We should be praying together as a congregation. This is good and this is right. But we're not to do our acts of righteousness for the very purpose that other people would see us. It's not about other people recognizing how great we are. It's rather about us doing things as service to God. So American society, I would argue, has always been kind of a righteousness culture, righteousness-driven sort of thing. Now, culturally, for stepping away from Christianity for a moment, culturally, it changes all the time about what is culturally and popularly right. 
But whatever it is at that time that's considered really important in the cultural sphere, everyone has to do a thing called virtue signaling. It's a word that's more recently entered the dictionary. Needing to publicly signal that they're in the right place on this issue or publicly do something good. Lutheran historian Martin Marty says there's an economy of righteousness in America. It just changes around which things are supposed to be counted as righteousness over time. That is, at one point, the most publicly important thing to do was hate communism. Other times, the most publicly important thing to do was to hate war. Other times, people go to protests, not necessarily to get change, but to have been seen at a protest. Sometimes, in our culture, the most important thing, the most virtuous things have to do with diet and health. And that's the thing everybody has to be on the right side of. Perhaps it's vegetarianism. Not anymore. Now it's veganism. You know, going with the old joke, how do you know if someone's vegan? Oh, they'll tell you. Yeah. Perhaps in our cultural moment now, being accepting and accepting of all sorts of people, just this idea that you're accepting no matter what, but specifically of gender and sexuality ideas and whatever anyone wants to do, however they want to identify it and however publicly they want to be about it. You'll recall this because culturally Pride Month was celebrated by apparently all companies, not by we who are Christians who celebrate changed lives and living righteously. but by all sorts of companies. And then there was also, because the culture also gets the absurdity of this, uh, there are a lot of hilarious photos of like the very day of the next month after Pride Month in which all these companies just have a couple of surly-looking guys taking down all these flags and decorations and throwing them away. Because on to the next thing that was just about signaling. It was just about posture. It was just about practicing somebody else's version of righteousness to be seen. It must not be us. For we who believe who are Christians, what's good and right and true, what is righteousness is given to us by God. The one who created us, created us specifically and on purpose and showed us what was the right way to live and told us all the things that weren't the right way to live that lead to consequences, that lead to pain and suffering for those around us no matter what anyone says. And we are to live righteous lives. But we must not do the acts of righteousness simply for the purpose of other people seeing us and thinking better of us. We can't think of ourselves as a brand that we have to increase the outlook of our own brand. Forgiving, the first example that Christ gives here. In giving, he says, don't let it be like the people on the street corner who do this very publicly. You don't want to be the person who, when the plate comes around, I want to say when the plate comes around, but now we have not tubs, but uh, boxes out there in the lobby, but who walks over in a very grandiose way to the box to insert it, who brings a trumpeter is what Jesus says. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) We don't want to be this person. I hope. It's not really clear as to whether he's being, um, whether this is a hyperbole from Jesus, which is something he uses in other places, or if this is accurate, that people were actually trumpeting down the streets. Uh, But then again, corporations do that all the time. There will be corporations, you know, who will spend a lot of money giving like clean bottles of water and things to hurricane victims, but then spend an equal amount of money making commercials about how good the thing was that they did. 
should not be us. So here, what I'd like to present for each of these three, giving, prayer, and fasting, I want to give you the bad example, but I also want to give you the good example. And since not practicing in front of people is the goal, you might understand it's hard to come up with examples because we wouldn't know about them if they were done right, right? Perhaps when it comes to giving, one bad example would be naming, naming your charity after yourself. If I called it the Jordan Bird Foundation, you know. If I held a golf fundraiser for the Jordan Bird Foundation for random things. There are tax, tax reasons and there are, there's all sorts of tax liabilities and tax purposes for why athletes and other people do this sort of thing. Um, but there's also other ways to do it than to name it after oneself. For example, good example this time. I was really impressed this past summer when I found out about an organization that you guys may have known about for years, because it's been around for a long time, but the First Tee Golf Program uh, for children. It, it came about like this for years at all the different golf courses here in town. Uh, long ago, some wealthy gentleman who really liked golf and wanted to give kids an opportunity to get into it donated a lot of money in order to create this program. So that very cheaply, children could get out on the golf course, get their own set of golf clubs, be encouraged into that culture. And it's more than just enjoying a sport. Because as you know, historically, even being allowed to go into the country club, onto the course, is a sign of privilege and being brought into an inner circle. So for a lot of children, and I saw this happen this past year, as we took our son, but also kids were bussed in from other parts of town to participate in this, and those children were all welcomed together to learn how to play golf. They were all there together at the club, being told that they're welcome to come in. I don't know the guy's name who put this together. I don't think he's alive any longer. I think he passed away the last few years. Some of you will know this sort of thing. But the way he chose to be charitable was in giving to children he would never meet and never needed to meet. And he didn't call it, you know, the Tim Ross First Tee Golf Program. It's for the kids. This is the sort of thing we ought to do. You know, as a church, um, there are plenty of, it's become popular in the last 20 years uh, for churches to hire on uh, fundraising campaign consultants. So you hire on somebody to help you raise more money in a building campaign program. And always it's demonstrated that it's true. If you pay somebody 5% or 10% of what you receive, then you can raise more like 20%. So you raise a greater number, they take a piece, but they help you do all these things. And one of the suggestions that's made across the board is uh, trying to be done... I don't want to be mean to anybody, but uh, the recommendation is uh, from a consultant always that you go and figure out, get a list of who your top 20 donors are as a church and go make a special presentation to them first to get them to pre-pledge, -pre -pre which primes the pump, there's a lot of P's there, pre-pledge to prime the pump, so to speak, in order to get other people to give more, and other people do. But something about it strikes me wrong. Again, I don't mean to insult anybody else or any other churches, but it seemed like the wrong thing for us to do and that a better way would be, why don't you pray, you who are led by the Holy Spirit, what God would have you give, everyone ought to put in something, just pray and let him steer you, offer it anonymously, and whatever we receive, that's what we've got and that's what we'll go with. So we did it without much fanfare. It's also important, I think, as a church that we don't really know who gives what. We ought not. Somebody has to count it, and somebody has to produce a tax receipt for you. But there's a very small group, only a couple of ladies who count each week and know who gives what, and the rest of us don't. I don't. 
And I think it's really important. So we can't even be accused, any of us, of saying that you treated somebody unfairly, which was a real problem confronted in Scripture. Can't be said, oh, you're, you're treating somebody better because they give more. I don't know who gives more. I wouldn't. So this is also an important application for us. God has called you to be generous, just as he has been generous to you. And yes, we are all to participate in the tithes and offerings. But the point for today is work very hard to make sure nobody else knows what you're doing. So that when you take your gift to God and say, God, I'm doing these things because I believe, the old nature that is in you and wants to be uh, pushing yourself forward and wants to receive glory for yourself, that old nature is pushed aside and you can say, I didn't do this for me. I didn't let anybody know. I did this for you, Christ, and I did this for these other people. The second illustration that Jesus gives is prayer. I'm gonna start reading in verse five. When you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing on the synagogues, on the street corners, to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on like the Gentiles. They imagine they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Let's read this together out loud. Recite it with me. Join me in this one if you have your Bible in front of you. If you just got it memorized in the King James, go ahead and, uh, and recite. But let's say it together. Ready? Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. I'll get the rest of it, but yeah, amen. <laughs> it's hard not to have read the Lord's Prayer out loud together, but you're right. It, it sounds real good in the King James, and I prefer personally uh, reciting it that way, but uh, this is a good faithful translation as well. If you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours as well. But if you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive your offenses. In prayer, he says, first of all, don't be like the people who pray to be seen for their praying, who pray to be seen as looking incredibly righteous. But he also adds a few other things here, Christ. He says, don't be like the Pharisees who try to pray out in public so people can dwell on how wonderful their rhetorical skills are. But don't also, he says, be like the Gentiles who kind of babble on and on, saying the same prayers repeatedly at the time, using certain phrases as if they're magic words. This is a related problem that Jesus brings up, and so we need to talk about as well. We are always in our prayers to pray in the name of Jesus. We ought to close with amen, amen, take your pick. But to say you know, Jesus, as it were, whatever you would have, and to ask things in the name of Jesus, but it, they're not magic words to the degree that if you were having a quick prayer uh, while driving and you didn't close out your prayer in Jesus' name, that, oh, the prayer's not effective any longer. 
We offer our lives and all of our prayers and words in Jesus' name. And so we, we don't want to become like uh, these uh, pagans at that time who thought that the words that they actually said were magic words that got God to do stuff for you. Like if you pray in Jesus' name, he has to answer it. You know? No, you can't. The idea behind a lot of this is either people glorifying themselves or trying to coerce in the, in the way of the Gentiles, trying to coerce their gods into having to answer their prayers. But rather, Jesus, in the contrary of both of them, gives us a very simple answer. He says, go and have a simple prayer with God. And of the other things that you'll be struck by in reading the Lord's Prayer, which is perfect and a great model for prayer, and by all means, pray the Lord's Prayer to Him regularly, King James or otherwise, one of the things you'll notice about it is how simple it is. It's, it's to the point. It's very direct because it's showing us that it's not our words specifically in which the power of prayer is, but it's the God that we're praying to who has all of the power. So it's perfectly appropriate to simply pray to God and say what's on your heart. A prayer that sounds like this, Lord, thank you. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure what I'm doing right now. But would you take care of me? I don't know how to ask you to lead me and my family forward in this situation, but I do want you to lead us. And I want you to help me to follow however you would lead. And I want you to help me to be at peace with however you lead. You don't have to use big words. Just open your heart to God and lay it before Him and let what is in your heart before God be gratitude be honesty and be truth because this is what God has for us. As promised, a bad example and a good example. A bad example of prayer for other people to hear it is trying to use certain phrases. You'll know some people who who use a lot of very interesting or specific uh, phrases but only in prayer in front of other people. The word Shekinah comes out a lot and things like that. It's like, do you use that word otherwise in your week? Uh, Another one I saw, this was pretty interesting, was uh, inevitably we're going to have to talk about social media today, right? When we're talking about posturing and humble brags. Uh, I saw on Twitter some, so I guess a while ago, back before the last election happened, um, a pastor who I knew who apparently, he put a picture on Twitter, apparently went to the Capitol building to have a prayer, and there was this picture of him that he had posted on his Twitter feed with an inspirational message, and it was a picture of him on his knees praying with his hands up out in front of the Capitol building, and the camera picture was taken just so, you know, somebody, somebody thought about this, and the sunlight was perfect, and there was a little lens flare to it, and it was awfully staged, and it just sort of makes you ask the question, who, who is taking this picture, and why is there a picture of you praying here like this, you know, so well done? Um, Again, these passages, these verses, they're not really for us to criticize other people. They're for us to examine ourselves. But an illustration for you nonetheless. How about a good illustration then? The use of a prayer room. We have a prayer room. It's a great space to go and to pray into. How about the use of a front porch or a back porch? It really doesn't matter where. But when it comes to prayer and following God, You really do need a space where you go to each day and it's quiet except for you to be able to pray to God. 
It's possible that it's your car on the drive in, okay. But then perhaps it ought to be a quiet car ride on the way in. The place is not as important as the fact that you set aside some quiet time to redirect all of your concerns and cares and attention and rejoicing towards Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the one who hears and answers your prayers. As we've said, of course, this doesn't mean that we don't pray publicly together. I've done it twice so far today, and I'm going to at least one more time while we're gathered up. Many of you will as well, and as you should, to be praying publicly with one another in groups. This is good and right to do. The criticism from Christ here is not that the things were done publicly. The criticism is that they were done for the purpose of focusing on the person who was doing it publicly. So yeah, let us pray and let us pray boldly and together and continuously, but let us use these tools, these verses for the evaluation of our own hearts, not the evaluation of other people. The last section here, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus says, now when you fast, don't go looking gloomy like the hypocrites. They make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. As a bad example goes, this would be the place for humble bragging. When you fast, and just like giving in prayer, it's expected that this is a part of your Christian life somewhere. When you fast, he says, you don't want to be the person going around, oh, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble getting work done today. I'm, you know, I'm fasting. and uh, Oh, I didn't mean to have to come out to Target here today and run errands. I didn't want anyone to see me like this while I'm fasting. This would be a place where a humble brag would be awfully apparent. Rather, Jesus says, when you fast, and you should, pick a quiet day when you can join your fasting with prayer, with reflection, with time before God, the odds are you're going to have to do something on that day. It's our lives. We work a lot, and then we work when we're not working, and that's okay too. But let it be a day in which, not when you have to eat meals in public with people, but when you can do this and no one else will know, so that you know in your heart, you who, like me and the rest of us, sometimes would like to be recognized you know, there's nothing better than doing something kind for somebody else and other people finding out about it. It feels good. But we know that we have wrong hearts on these things, and we would want to celebrate ourselves when the focus of our lives and our attention must be Christ and those other people who are being served. So let us simply make it to where the worst parts of our old nature can't steer us on these things. As for contemporary applications of this passage for us, what sorts of acts of righteousness can we do, do we do, that we need to do secretly and quietly? How about service for other people? Caring for the poor? Checking in on shut-ins and people who we know around us? Taking care of our neighbor? Orphans? The yards of other people? You know, one of the great joys in preaching this passage to you guys today is... For the, for the membership of Talatha, I'm not having to preach at you. You already know this and model it so well. 
I don't have to go, you sinners. This is, this is exactly how you are. Because so many of you already do all sorts of wonderful things, all sorts of acts of righteousness, and you didn't want anyone to know about it. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, I mentioned one of our people who had done something really neat for another member and had kept it quiet themselves. I just happened to know that it happened. And I used it as an illustration in a sermon one time to encourage the rest of the congregation. I think the congregation was encouraged by it. But that person came up to me afterwards and said, don't ever mention that again, you know, don't you? <laughs> said to me very clearly, I will not be a sermon illustration ever again. And, uh, and fair enough. And they were right. Um, of course, I wanted to encourage the congregation, but they also wanted their acts to be private. And this is good and this is right. Congregation, you do this well, and so let us all allow our actions to be before Christ alone. There's a bunch of people out on the internet. Here's another new word for you. You ready? Influencer. Whatever that means. People who are looking for an audience. For us, for our lives, we have our audience, and our audience is Christ. So we are living our lives before him, this God of ours. So let us, as we live our lives before God, let our actions be for Christ and not ourselves. Let our actions be for the benefit and the blessing of other people, not thinking about ourselves at all. Let us hope that in blessing them, we will be doing it because of the generosity that God has shown us. Not so people will think better of us. When we pray, let it be like this, Lord, thank you. What should I do? Your will be done. If you'll simply give me enough to get from day to day, that'll do. But please forgive my sins and help me to forgive others. And when we go to fast, let us do it this way, saying, Lord, teach me, remind me, help me to focus on you today. When we go to fast, let it be so that we can reorient our mind and our priorities around what God would have for us in life, to take a moment to declare to ourselves and to him that Jesus is Lord and we are not, and our hope is in him and not in ourselves. Let us do all of this following Jesus Christ our Lord, who lived his life on earth to lift up the name of the Father, who the Father did all things in order to exalt the Son. If humility and generosity is at the very nature of who God is, then it will have to be at the very nature of who we are as well. Father God, I thank you that you're so gracious to us. And I pray that you would teach us so that we could obey you better. Amen. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.